0: Welcome back everyone to the second episode of left right left. Uh, If you're tuning back in, we appreciate it. And we have uh, some exciting topics for you this week. We're going to be discussing uh, Trump's ongoing refusal to concede the results of the 2020 election. uh, Some historic firsts in the United States Congress. We're going to talk a little bit about the politics of covid 19 which is uh, currently begun or I should say continued exploding across the country at an unprecedented rate. And lastly, we're going to finish up with a little bit about some of President-elect Joe Biden's potential cabinet appointments. It's going to be a little little bit on the gossip side because uh, those things are pretty hard to predict, but um, it should be an interesting discussion. So let's get into it. Um, It's pretty clear by now that Joe Biden um, has won the election, but Trump Uh, continues to tweet and rage and... uh, He won the
1: election by a lot.
0: (laughs) Tried to lawyer his way into the White House, which um, I mean, he has every right to protest the uh, results of the election, but...
1: um... He has every right to investigate whatever irregularities there are. However, the simple fact of the matter is, every single accusation he has made so far has been peanuts it has been nothing and he talks a big talk in public about how i I think the other day he made a tweet about how potentially millions of votes were fabricated which is a, a very shocking allegation to come from a u.s president but the 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 simple fact of the matter is when the trump administration gets into court they really start to back off their rhetoric like in pennsylvania they, they were asked point blank if they thought in one of what was supposed to be one of their big lawsuits. Asked point blank if they thought that 592 ballots that were received via mail were in any way fraudulent, and their answer was no. Donald Trump has every right to request recounts. He has every right to ask that any irregularities or unfairness in the uh, election process is investigated, looked into, brought to court, etc. However, the simple fact of the matter is, in public, he is making exaggerated, fantastical claims about voter fraud that are doing little more than, than delegitimizing public trust in this election, because every single thing that he has said has been unsubstantiated. He has not brought any compelling proof to Congress. He has been cut off while speaking uh, to major news organizations. He's been cut off. Fox News has even pleaded with him to accept the results of the election. And he was so enraged that he was retweeting every rando on his Twitter who was complaining about Fox News becoming a front for leftists. And this is not an exaggeration. This is an actual thing that the President of the United States is doing. It is absurd to me. and. To In my opinion, I think that Donald Trump knows that he has lost. What kind of st- stuck out to me was some of the way in which his rhetoric began to change and in how he was pushing to contest results in certain states. That, to me, signaled he, he knew that he did not have the votes. The rumor is that he's doing all of this to put up a show, essentially, for his supporters so that they don't feel like he's just bowing down because admittedly it's very funny that a guy who mocks his opponents as low energy and and all that lost to a man that he spent the last two years calling sleepy and lost in the popular vote by quite a few million votes and in the electoral college not by a huge margin but certainly by a a convincing one and by the same margin that he had won four years earlier it's so depressing to see a U.S. president feel like he has to go out for blood to attack our democracy, to make the public distrust the results of a very fair, widely participated in election, a historic election, really. He feels like he has to prove something, and all he's really doing is is trying to kneecap our democracy and the way that we look at our elections. On the one hand, I think it is wonderful that turnout was so high in this election. More and more people are being involved in government in the decisions that their politicians make. That's really important. But on the other hand, I think that there's going to be a lot of permanent damage in how people look at elections. Because right now, right now, about a quarter of Republicans, I saw this this in a poll poll earlier today, about a quarter of Republicans believe under no circumstances should Donald Trump concede. I don't remember the exact number for this, but um, at least half of Republicans believe that at the current moment, Donald Trump should not concede, which just makes me wonder what are they expecting? Like I said, Donald Trump, every right to contest the results by asking for recounts or possible investigations of any irregularities. But the simple fact of the matter is he has made some extravagant dramatic and shocking claims, and he has not turned up anything to substantiate any of it. I know that was a bit of a monologue, fellas, but I think this is a very important issue.
2: <laughs> a reminder that talking about shocking claims, I just want to remind everyone that less than four years ago, I mean, Democrats railed on about Russian interference in our election, and then... Spent- hold
1: on, hold on, hold on. Russian interference did occur, and multiple members of the Trump campaign were implicated for inappropriate communications with Russia. I am not personally accusing Donald Trump of doing anything with Russia, because we never saw any any specific proof that Donald Trump himself had any meddling with Russia, but we know for a fact that Russia meddled in our election. Russian interference did occur
2: that they tried to interfere in the election, but I think that- No, the, that
1: they did occur, or it, it did occur.
2: The refusal not that they tried, it happened. ...of democratic elected officials to accept the results of the election as legitimate and an overwhelming consensus that the people of the United States did not want Hillary Clinton to be the next president of the United States. And well,
1: now- let's also be clear about something. Hillary Clinton got 3 million more votes than Donald Trump, so 3 million more people... Wanted Hillary Clinton to be president than Donald Trump.
2: Vote system. We have the electoral college for a reason. And okay, I'll...
1: but that doesn't mean that the people picked Donald Trump. It means that land allotments picked Donald Trump.
2: That's not true. All I'm saying is, and also the majority of people in Pennsylvania, in Michigan, and Wisconsin, and there were people who changed their votes this time, and that's fine. But also, I just want to say that in the past we've seen this kind of panic politics. I remember just a few months back people were like Tulsi Gabbard she's gonna run as a third party oh she's gonna take votes from the democrat and when the time came she dropped out and she endorsed joe biden and i think that if at the end of the day Trump's legal uh, 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 proceedings do not turn out in his favor, he's gonna concede. You know, I see a lot of panic like, oh no, he's not gonna concede if he officially loses, he's gonna try to start a civil war. I think it's just panicking and I think it's too much and I think people are making too much of this and I think we're gonna see what happens in the next couple of weeks.
1: I don't think he'll necessarily concede. I do think he'll leave office. So I could imagine Donald Trump leaving office without ever formally saying, okay, I lost, Joe Biden won, that I can see. Uh, I think the the attack on this election that we're seeing from a sitting president is unprecedented. And it does not compare to the very real interference in our election that happened four years ago, and the very real corruption of a number of figures in the Trump campaign. Again. I'm not implicating Donald Trump of anything. However, there is no denying that a number of people on his campaign acted inappropriately, especially with respect to Russia. I don't think, I'll, 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 I'll extend the olive branch, because I've been going at you a little bit, Alex. I'll extend the olive branch in the sense that I do think that there are some Democrats who are way too rattled by the Russia thing. <laughs> I do believe Russian interference occurred, but there are some Democrats where if you say a single critical thing about the Democratic Party, they accuse you of being like a Russian bot. I have friends who have made leftist criticisms of Democrats, and they've been shouted down as as Russian bots and like Russian propaganda mills. So I think there is sort of a, a stir craziness uh, that has that has come from uh this this whole Russia situation. But Russian interference did still occur. And it I, I don't know, I can't personally say because I don't know if the information's out there. I don't personally know to what extent it impacted the results. But I'm not gonna sit here and tell you that it didn't happen because it did.
0: Russia aside, I mean I'm not I'm not concerned that he won't concede because to me concession doesn't really matter, right? What like matters
1: that he leaves office. If yes, there's an actual peaceful transition of power.
0: There's no legal requirement that, that he concede. I think everyone fully expects him to leave on January 21st. Um, I think it's more the damage to the institutions, which Cam, you definitely touched on. Um, he's, definitely, he's laid a groundwork for contesting future elections. Um, if he turns up even a handful of illegally cast ballots, you can guarantee that you're going to hear about him in future elections as precedent for contesting. I mean, um, he was
1: questioning the election results in 2012. He was questioning the election results in 2016. Even Here's the when, thing.
0: Yeah, when he won.
1: <laughs> even when he won, he claimed that like he, he won the popular vote by millions, if you if you discount like all the fraudulent ballots, I don't remember exactly what he said, but I was gonna say, I think a lot of this comes down to, I know it's a topic we're not gonna cover this week, but we will soon, what the Republican party and what Trump will look like post January. And that's what makes this a little bit tricky is gauging what is the damage to our institutions? Because not necessarily to agree with Alex, but I will say, I think this is fair to say, The 2016 election did a lot to delegitimize people's faith in elections, and it's great that a lot of people participated this time, but it feels like a lot more people are going to continue to lose faith in the integrity of our elections.
0: So I think it's that, and then I think, I'm sure both of you have heard about this, and I'm actually interested to hear what you think about it. Um, How much of it is just posturing to, you know, cover up what is... Evidently a loss. I mean, as we've stated not like not a horrible loss like Democrats were surprised by the amount of Republicans that turned out in support of Trump. So not like a complete repudiation of him, but a loss nonetheless. And so Mm -hmm. contesting the results of of the election gives him cover for that for a potential 2024 run. In addition to people are talking about the, the looking into withdrawing troops from Afghanistan and Somalia as like a potential you know, li- very late-term win for him that he could, you know, run on in in 2024. Um, so he could say, you know, two vaccines, potential COVID vaccines came out under my administration, right? Uh, maybe they weren't administered, but they came out. You know, we withdrew troops from uh, Somalia and Afghanistan. Great for our country. And on top of that, you know, 2020 election was a hoax. It was a fraud, blah, blah, blah. I never lost because he's so big on winning. He's not used to losing. And so I wonder how much of this is posturing for that.
1: But I think the most important thing is it almost doesn't matter if it's posturing if people believe it.
0: Yes, I I agree. But it gives a method to the madness.
1: Right. But if even half the people who voted for him are convinced the election was stolen, which, you know, I, I don't I don't know what the actual number will break out to be. It's it, Right now it sounds like at least about a quarter of Republicans um, believe that the election is en route to being stolen if they don't think Trump should concede at all. You know, how is, if, if this is something that people very sincerely believe, I mean, some political issues really linger for a long time, right? Is this going to be a line that we hear for many elections going forward? Like twenty twenty was stolen. Oh, they stole it from Trump. All the fraudulent ballots, the mail-in ballots—they stole it from Trump. Coronavirus was fake. Whatever. You know, are all these factors going to come together? I, it's it's
2: hard to say. But
0: Alex, I want to give you a chance to chime in on this, and I think we should move on afterwards to the Congress.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think one of the things that's interesting about this election in particular, more so than just talking about the, the possible concession and what you know the result of this may be, I think the result itself is very interesting. Cam, you had mentioned earlier that the result is an exact flip of the 2016 results, at, at least electorally. Some of the states are different. For example, Dems picked up uh, uh, Arizona this time. Um, so, you know, some things are a little bit different, but um, the numbers are the same. And I think it's interesting that even in defeat, potential defeat in 2020, um, Donald Trump still has a greater electoral margin than Mitt Romney did in 2012 by almost 30 electoral votes and a greater margin than John McCain did in 2008 um, by almost 50 electoral votes. So. I think it's interesting that even someone who is very controversial um, was so much closer than these two. So, at the end of the day, I think Republicans are going to take note. We tried mainstream Republicans in 2008 and 2012, and they were absolutely obliterated by President Obama. And this time, even in a loss, uh, it was quite close. It was close in Arizona, it was close in Georgia, in Pennsylvania, and in Wisconsin. So. Um, It's
1: worth mentioning, it was close in the electoral vote, which is at the end of the day, what matters. But in terms of percent of the popular vote, uh, Trump has performed at the same level as Mitt Romney. Mitt Romney had 47.2% of the popular vote in 2016, Trump got 46.1. And in this year, 2020, Trump is at 47.2%. So I think it's not so much that he's expanded the GOP electorate so much as, because it seems to be a roughly consistent chunk of the population, it's more so that he changed the electoral map Mm -hmm. so that even if he doesn't need to get more votes, he can get votes in the right places, which is, in America, what matters.
2: All right, so talking about this discussion of potentially either changing the electoral map or the the tent of the GOP and the Democratic Party, um, let's move on to a discussion about some of our historical firsts in Congress and how the face of Congress has changed as a result of this election. So we have a lot of new freshmen coming in on both sides of the aisle. A lot of incumbents retired, a lot of incumbents got beat a lot of interesting people a lot of a lot of very interesting figures this is not a 2014 or a 2010 where you're getting a bunch of you know run-of-the-mill republicans or democrats on both sides of the aisle you're getting a completely new brand of politics and i wonder if it could be indicative of of where politics is going now but just to talk very briefly about some of these historical firsts that we have in congress um, I mean, I could go on for for days about some of these. But just to really drive it home, um, let's start with my home state of California and Washington. We elected not one, not two, but three of the first Korean-American women ever elected to Congress at the same time. Um, And I think that's pretty incredible. One was a Democrat, and two were Republicans. And I mean, I think that's a really interesting first step, and I think those three are interesting, two of those three, the Republicans are interesting because Republicans are making an active inroad for the Asian community in the United States. They see a potential path to victory, particularly with large Asian American communities in New York in California and all across the United States. Um, and so I think that the Republican Party is looking at this as an opportunity to to expand their base. More than that, um, Kaika Healy in Hawaii, who's replacing incumbent uh, Tulsi Gabbard, who decided not to seek reelection, is the first indigenous Hawaiian person to represent Hawaii in Congress. I don't I like Kaika that. Healy, pretty cool. That you is one
0: wonder- and, and sad that it, that it took this long to. Be I honest. could
1: spend I could spend a whole day crying about what the U.S. government has done to the people of Hawaii. So I think I think it's wonderful.
0: We'll save We'll save the crying for another episode. Yeah, I, we'll I, save the crying for another
2: episode. I agree, but I do think it's interesting that Hawaii has shown a proclivity to elect minority members. That's never well. To be fair, it is a majority minority state. Oh, no, absolutely, and they have but a plurality Asian. They have elected a number of Asian American people to both the United States Senate and the U.S. House, sending the first Hindu, American Samoan, I believe Japanese uh, uh, woman and Japanese man, I believe, uh, to Congress. So they've, they've had a lot of historic firsts and Kaikahili re- represents another. Um, moving on a little bit, in New York we have our first two afro latinx and african-american um homosexual men who were just elected to congress
1: mondair jones
2: and what's the name of the other
1: guy i always blank on
2: it oh man it is um mondair jones mondair jones and richie richie torres richie torres so i mean that's pretty interesting um you know there are gay men in congress currently but now we have uh gay folks who are also people of color um so i think this is going to be an interesting uh opportunity for intersectionality to start showing its face in congress you know in the past we've had oh We have an openly gay person, but they always were white, or you have a black person, but they tend to be straight. And now we're starting to see intersectionalities. One of the Korean American women that I mentioned on the Democratic side is African American and Korean American. So she's mixed race, yeah, Marilyn Strickland. So, I mean, that's really interesting because now not only are we starting to see these groups of people, but we are starting to see subgroups, mixed race people, people with multiple layers of, of identity starting to show up in Congress. Um, and I think that's starting to come at a time that people are realizing that there is more than one aspect to, uh, to identity and to identity politics. And I wonder how identity politics is gonna change. Um, also great night for Republican women on election night. Nancy Mace is the first Republican woman to represent South Carolina in the US House of Representatives in Congress period. Uh, which is kind of crazy considering that South Carolina has been a traditionally quite red state, at least in, in, in recent memory. Um, you have Yvette Harrell, who coming from New Mexico, who's the first Cherokee woman elected to Congress and the first Republican Native American woman elected to Congress. Um, and you have Stephanie Bice from Oklahoma, who's the first Iranian American elected to Congress. So. It's a great night for diversity. It's a great night for Republican women, and I think it's a great night for representation um, uh, in the United States Congress because we're starting to get a bigger tent on both sides of the aisle as as the face of Congress starts to change to be younger, more diverse, and uh, more balance between uh, male and female representatives.
1: Now, I am of the opinion that whenever Republicans win, it's a bad night for America. Wrong. However, no, I mean, it is correct. But however, uh, representation is is a good thing. It is, um, you know, it's been studied and found over and over that when people see people like them, especially underrepresented people in prominent positions, in either positions of power or, or um, of some kind of celebrity status or whatever, um, you know, it it has a positive effect on people because if you only see people who look nothing like you on TV or whatever, it almost, you know, it gives people this idea in the back of their heads that, oh, that's not for me, I can't do that. So I think representation is a good thing. Uh, You know, I I don't know if you mentioned it, but there are now more black women elected to Congress than ever before in part because wonderful progressive Cori Bush, organizer, uh, nurse, Cori Bush, she successfully primaried uh, an incumbent Democrat who'd been serving for about 20 years and who was preceded by his father, who had served for uh, for 30 years. She successfully primaried a 50-year political dynasty in St. Louis. She's a progressive member of the House. Uh, it, it it It's been a very interesting election cycle, I will say that. There are a lot of fresh new faces, a lot of people who could potentially shake things up. And, and to be very honest, part of it is because of AOC, okay? Because a lot of people want to be, they want to have that kind of draw that AOC has. And this is why you'll even see people say, we, we need an AOC on the right. They're like, uh, you know, some people are like, Lauren Boebert's going to be the AOC of the right. We're going to have the right wing squad it's going to be like aoc marjorie taylor green and madison cawthorn all people i despise but
2: what did they ever do
1: there's a sort of celebrity status that aoc has or that politicians like bernie have or elizabeth warren even has a sort of celebrity uh, status
2: mm,
1: people know and that. oh and and uh, oh my god i'm i'm a dumbo how could i forget our president who was a reality TV celebrity. <laughs> so I, I think there are a lot of fresh, interesting faces because I, I, I think in this world, people are trying to have an image and more and more politicians are realizing the old fuddy-duddy image. You know, the very straight-laced, traditional image of politics. It's not really what people want. It's not really what motivates people. And I think in part through figures like AOC, a lot of House members uh, on both sides of the political aisle are looking for ways to kind of captivate and motivate an audience.
2: And I mean, I will just add, um, Cam, you talked about, I I think you're 100% right. I think AOC motivated a lot of people to run, just like Donald Trump motivated a lot of people to run. I on think, both
1: sides, on both sides.
2: Pendulum. I think Donald Trump got elected. And so a lot of liberal women said, you know, we want a piece of the action. We want our voice to be heard. And then people like AOC and Congresswoman uh, uh, Talib and Congresswoman Omar and Presley came in. And then conservative women said, hey, wait a minute. We want our voices to be heard too. And so I'm interested to see what's going to happen uh, come 2022. With that being said, um, you, you mentioned for a second, you know that they're trying to model uh, an anti-AOC image. Um, and that actually is- think it's gonna be? <laughs> actually already started. So Congresswoman-elect Nicole Malliotakis, who just got elected, she beat incumbent Democrat Max Rose in New York in Staten Island. Um, she's starting it. She's the daughter of Cuban immigrants and she's starting it with Congressman uh, Carlos Jimenez of Florida, who's also Cuban born um congresswoman victoria sparts who was elected from indiana and is the first person by the way i I almost forgot this one um, who was elected and the uh excuse me the first elected member who's also a woman who was born under the former soviet union um and maria elvira salazar congresswoman elect from uh miami as well next to carlos jimenez um who also grew up under communism. Her parents were Cuban exiles. So you have these four people who are either descendants of or are people who have fled from socialism or communism. So they're setting up the quote unquote anti-socialism squad. Um, so Cam, I'm sure you'll have a field day with that, but it's going to be an interesting crop of people. And I, I don't want
1: to cover that this week. I could say way too much about that.
2: Nick, you have anything you want to add?
0: I don't really have any hot takes on this. Um, I would hope that this is everyone's point of view, that diversity is a good thing. Diversity of viewpoints is a good thing. It's important. Um, It's taken way too long to get here. We've been a country led and governed by old white men for A long time. And I think the bottom line is a government should look like its people, especially the legislature should look like its people. And I mean, obviously, we're still far from that, but I think it's a step in the right direction. And I think we off off microphone. We had a bit of a spat about this before um, But Regardless of your party affiliation diversity Coming into the legislative body is a good thing. Uh,
1: Diversity is good.
0: I agree with Cam that when Republicans win, it's a, it's a bad day for a lot of people. But the bottom line is, is yeah, representation counts. And I think uh, one of the biggest things that we have kind of glossed over here, um, probably because she was already in Congress, but uh, first uh, female vice president.
2: Oh, yeah.
1: <laughs> oh, my God. I actually thought in my head before we started, I have to mention first woman as vice president, first black vice president, first Asian vice president, not the first non-white vice president. That's a fact that's actually, that's a little factoid that's been circulating around because a lot of people have said, oh, oh my God, uh, Kamala Harris is the first non-white vice president. And a lot of people have said, no, no, no. Herbert Hoover's vice president, Charles Curtis, he was native American. He was, I think he was crow. He grew up on a reservation for a number of years. He was caw, my bad. And props to him. Props to him, apart from all the rules he put in place that, uh, all the legislation that he supported and drafted that eroded tribal sovereignty, the very thing that he lamented when he was a child. Um, But that's okay. That's okay. (laughs) You know what? He's been dead. He's been dead for almost a hundred years. I can't really undo that one.
2: But uh, I think that this may. The Republican Party, in particular, has had a a, a problem getting women elected, and the reason why is because they didn't get involved in primaries until Congresswoman Stefanik said, uh, "We need to get involved in primaries because we can't continue to have you know fifteen or less women while Democrats have eighty in the House alone." Do you think
1: that sort of reckoning started around 2010, when Republicans realized the power of primaries with the Tea Party movement?
2: I think that they realized that they were in trouble. And I think at that point, they were saving their own hides and not really worried about expanding the tent, but instead, keeping the establishment in. And then I think they realized, you know, our, our Freedom Caucus friends are here to stay. And certain districts are just more inclined to elect a certain type of rep. That's not, you know, establishment mainstream. But we need more women and not just moderate women. We need women in safely conservative, red, solid districts because we can't have all of our women be wiped out every time it's a good year for Democrats. And I I mean, I think that's what we're seeing. Not not only did uh, Republican women flip districts, but we also have you know congresswoman elect kat Kamick from florida who is electing now uh, is representing now a solidly republican district and that's what we're starting to see more of and i think well like
1: marjorie taylor green her district I think, I think it's like r plus the
2: democrat two. the democrat withdrew before the general election because they were like he was
1: still on the ballot uh, he was now he withdrew because of horrendous um, harassment that he was facing and it like it put so much pressure on his wife uh, on his life that his wife divorced him
2: oh my gosh
1: and he moved back to his parents home in illinois he actually fled the state the her district by the way is r plus 27
2: yeah so i mean it's it's one of those where but i mean i think that the party has realized we can't just have moderate women we need you know populist women we need very conservative women we need minority women and out of all the seats that were flipped The vast majority of them, I want to say like 85% of the seats that were flipped on election night were, uh, and I believe all of the seats that were flipped on election night were flipped either by a woman or a minority or both. So I I hope this a lesson to the Republican Party.
1: I think a lot of this reckoning came especially for the Republican Party around 2012, because a lot of people looked at the electoral map in 2012 and said the republican party can't win again Mm -hmm. what's what's their path to victory the republican party had to rethink the electoral map and find ways to appeal to again not most people because republicans since 2000 have not been very good about winning more votes but they have been pretty decent at winning the right votes And in 2012, when it looked like the Democratic Party would be really difficult to beat in a national election, the Republican Party had to think of a strategy moving forward to expand the map. They had to find a way to penetrate the blue wall. And I think now the Republican Party is trying to find other ways to expand the map and to you know, keep the uh, electoral college competitive, even if they know that, you know, they're going to lose the popular vote by a few million. So, I, I, I what I will say is that out, voter outreach for the Trump campaign, especially among different demographics of minority voters, was actually very strong. You know, it didn't necessarily pay off. There was nothing tremendously historic about the percentage of of uh, people of color who voted for Donald Trump, but it was still uh, one of the higher margins a Republican has gotten in, in quite a while. So it's a strategy to expand the map and uh, it, it is unclear how well it will pay off because the ultimate question will be how does the Democratic Party respond? And I, cu- I couldn't tell you that, uh, at least not yet.
2: Also, we doubled the gay vote, by the way, 14 to
1: 28%. That is true. And I'm, I'm going to bite my tongue on, on comment. On
2: <laughs> the gays love Donald Trump.
1: They should not. Or sorry, I should say now, we should not.
2: And now, and now, uh, the Republican party is starting to love the gays. I hope. Fingers crossed. Uh, that, that, <laughs>
1: that one's going to be kind of 50-50.
2: It's okay. It's coming. It's a a process, but we are riding the wave to victory, the red wave.
1: What about the evangelicals? The red wave of white gay men.
2: Evangelicals, it it, it needs to be, at the end of the day, just mutual respect, I think. (laughs) But we'll get there. But that's a conversation for another day.
1: That That is a conversation for another day, and I think an extremely thorny one.
0: I would agree with that.
2: You should bring a pastor on here.
0: Oh, no. I would probably yell at him.
2: A Franklin Graham Jr.
0: (laughs) (laughs) With that, I feel like we should move on to our discussion of the politics of COVID, unless anyone objects.
1: I'm content with that.
0: So, over the past two weeks, we've seen a 79% increase in cases in the United States and a 38% increase in deaths. I don't think anyone needs to hear many more tragic facts about COVID. Um,
1: it's just, it's so depressing to look at. The, it's depressing the-
0: to see the unprecedented spread. It's depressing to hear how governments are handling it. And it's depressing to think about where we're gonna be in a couple months. We're we're seeing record
1: levels of hospitalizations in multiple states, including my beautiful state of residence, the Buckeye State, Ohio. It is so sad. I feel like the United States controlled COVID-19 for about a week, and then we decided to take a victory lap. There is nothing to celebrate with how the coronavirus is in the United States. And because we're talking about COVID politics, I'll lay a thought on YouTube, because this kind of occurred to me. One thing that I often talk about is I say, you know why Americans hate paying taxes? We don't get anything for them. We pay taxes so that when we're retired, we get Social Security, essentially. We get very little back from the government. That's why even though, you know, we'll say, oh, well, the French have a higher tax burden or something. Well, the French also have fewer out-of-pocket expenses because they get things, they get services for their taxes. In America, we don't. So then, you know, I applied sort of the same mindset to lockdowns. Why do Americans hate lockdowns? Because we are seeing historic levels of, of unemployment, of people scraping to get by you know people the average american had a very precarious financial situation before this pandemic it was something like it was something like close to 80 percent of workers were living paycheck to paycheck something like three quarters of americans couldn't afford an emergency expense of up to i think a thousand dollars and so the reason we don't like lockdowns is because we lock down our economy gets worse predictably would have been worse if we hadn't locked down because there'd be way more people dying, but we locked down, businesses closed, people lost their homes, a lot of people lost their homes and we didn't get anything back. Okay. People got 1200 bucks and we were told that's it. And our government has gotten nowhere. I, I, So I I, I understand why people don't like lockdowns, because in a normal, healthy, functioning society, we would offer aid and support to people in this incredibly trying time. And instead, what we're doing is we're saying, figure it out yourself. And so I get why people don't like lockdowns. But at the same time, the COVID numbers right now are dreadful.
0: I think I think this is the classic public policy conundrum that I'm sure both of you recall from uh, your studies is it's it's all stick and no carrot, right? Like, there's no tangible incentive for most people because the threat itself is not tangible unless it has touched your life in some way. And, I mean, unfortunately, it has touched a lot of people's lives in terms of deaths. We but su- it's... We
1: surpassed a quarter of a million a day, which is...
0: Mm-hmm.
1: That breaks my heart, it really does.
0: And so while you may know someone who has lost someone or you have lost someone yourself, a lot of us still have not had that tangible impact. And so it's to me, it's almost like the conundrum we face with climate change in that it's taking very drastic and very painful measures on the front end to avoid horrible damage on the back end but in order to actually get those things done, to make people do them, is incredibly difficult.
1: The 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 difficulty is not, and you can look into this with any major like public policy proposal. You can look into it with Medicare for All. You can look into it for Green New Deal, and you can look into it with coronavirus and basic income and all that. The issue is not resources. We have the resources we have the the logistical capabilities of instituting all these programs the issue the, the the actual barrier it's political and cultural it's so frustrating that this country has become so deadlocked that in one of the most dire times of need in this country's history we are not doing anything we are doing less than any other country in the world the covid situation has sp- Spiraled. It is shocking. And I mentioned this before the show. You know, the ultimate determinant of how someone gets COVID is not if they live in a high density or low density area. It's what their habits are. If they go out, do they go out to bars? Do they wear a mask? Do they socially distance? That's why in states like North Dakota, which were I does North Dakota have a lockdown now? I think they are actually finally starting to to move. A little bit in North Dakota because of how drastic the situation
2: is about a mask mandate for the first time since the virus started if I remember if I read correctly today
1: right because it's it's spiraled out of control in in the Dakotas I was reading an article today about someone who was working as a contact tracer in North Dakota she said we we basically had to give up we basically lost hope because it, it has gotten so bad it doesn't matter if North Dakota is a very rural state What matters is that the signals that they've been getting from their elected officials, from you know the governor, the the governor they support, and from the president that they um, you know voted for by quite an overwhelming margin, they're putting out signals that you can essentially do most of what you want, and people are going to take that signal because it it sucks staying at home. It sucks locking down. It's not fun. And people don't want to do that. I don't want to do it. I want coronavirus to be over. But the problem is it's not going to be over until we all take this seriously. It 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 is really beyond tragic to see how bad it's spiraling. We're starting to see record hospitalizations, which means within the next couple of weeks we're going to start seeing record numbers of deaths. Cuz the the deaths they kind of they they're a little bit staggered. So you get the big spike in cases and then a few weeks later that's when you get the big spike in deaths because you know the the Sickness has to play out its course. It's really hard to put into words how difficult it is to watch this happen and to see how a lot of people still don't take it very seriously because we're we're not we're not done with this. We got a ways to go, and a lot of people are getting sick
0: right now. I think that's a good segue into the way that it's been handled. Not only federally, but on a on a state level, or I guess in the absence of federal leadership, it's been handled on a state level. And so we were before we were talking about how COVID could change our politics going forward. And one of the things I've been thinking about a lot is, and I've, I've actually talked about this with Alex before, is the rise of the governor um, in terms of prominence. I would say probably before this started. A lot of people maybe couldn't name their governor, maybe couldn't tell you what a governor's role was, maybe didn't even understand the the structure of state governance. And now, in some cases, governors have been sort of propelled to superstardom. My um, um, prominent example would be Andrew Cuomo. Uh, people were saying he should run for president. Um, Please, no. That's- I don't I, I don't think anyone would have said that before COVID. He's just Andrew Cuomo, he's a governor of New York. Even Ned Lamont, my governor in Connecticut, um, was kind of a no one. Probably still is to many people, but I think just having an executive at the state level have a actual role in what your day-to-day life looks like. I think has been kind of a wake up call for people, in terms of how governance can affect their lives, and so I wonder how that's going to affect things going forward.
1: It's it's we're in a situation where people have to look to their uh, elected leaders to take cues. This is like again, what determines whether or not um, what determines someone's likelihood to get COVID is is your habits, and so people will take cues from their governors because they're paying attention to our governors because most people. Even the people who think coronavirus is a hoax, they're taking this situation seriously. Because even if you believe it, it's a hoax. That means that you believe there's something greater at play that we have to watch out for, right? So everyone, regardless of where you stand on the pandemic, is looking to their, you know governors, um, um, representatives too, because uh, you know it's a question of what legislation are you working on to do something about this? What is Congress doing? And of course. A lot of attention is focused on the White House, the president, the Coronavirus Task Force, Dr. Fauci, who here had heard of Anthony Fauci before this year? Not me. And he's been around for an awfully long time. He's actually a very important dude. But I would ne- not heard of him before this year. People are looking to their leaders because this is a situation that affects all of us and that can have, uh, you know, lethal consequences. Uh, so. It's, it's good that people are getting engaged. I will say it is disheartening though to see that a lot of people still are not taking coronavirus very seriously. Not a majority. A majority of Americans do take coronavirus very seriously. But there's a vocal like quarter to a third who aren't.
2: I think that COVID, like the president and like AOC, has made politics more accessible at different levels. You know, a lot of people talk about turnout. But the truth is, is that President Trump has made people pay attention to not only the president, but the vice president, as well as their competitors in a race. COVID has made people not only pay attention to their own governor, but to governors of different states. I think everyone probably, or at least most people know who Andrew Cuomo are, even if you're not from New York, who Gretchen Whitmer is, even if you're not from Michigan, and you know maybe even uh, my own governor Gavin Newsom from California, um, and maybe some of the other governors who have, you know, had different approaches. The Republicans, Ron DeSantis in Florida and Brian Kemp in Georgia, those are names that are becoming household when they wouldn't normally be. Or Mike AOC DeWine. Has Congress accessible. I think there were a lot of people who didn't really know what Congress did before 2018 that do now because of her and because of the because of the squad. So you know, a bunch of people, vastly different parties, but COVID has made statewide politics accessible. And I think more people understand what different parts of the government do now than they did before.
1: It's also given people the time to engage in politics.
2: Mm Mm-hmm. And I think that's a big reason why you have such massive, massive, massive voter turnout. Like we haven't seen before, not just on one side, but both that's impressive that both the Republicans and Democrats are turning out like never before.
1: I think this year has reminded people that our elected officials make very important decisions that affect all of us. Politics, Kind of is like a big game, but here's the thing: if you're not playing, the game goes on, decisions are made, and those decisions will affect you.
0: And I think, unfortunately, it's taken a crisis of unparalleled proportions to illustrate to reach that this level to of
1: civic engagement. Exactly. Yeah.
0: It's not the greatest point to make, since I don't have the actual statistic off the top of my head. But wasn't there there was a surge in Sales of American flags following 9-11. Like, it's not a perfect analogy, but... There
1: definitely was. There definitely was.
0: But I think it shows how a crisis forces us to do a bit of inward thinking and sort of rally around the idea of what a government is and what a government should be and what a government needs to provide.
1: I think we're doing a lot of inward thinking, but it's also very conflicted.
0: I think that's natural. I right. mean, I think when, once you first start paying attention, the first thought is, oh my God, why is it like this?
2: We also need to talk about how politics are going to change because of a potential new Biden administration. And one of the oh, things to discuss as a part of the Biden administration is who he's gonna to select to surround him and who he's going to select to lead different administrations from the Department of Education to the Department of State. He's got some big decisions to make. Do I choose moderates? Do I choose progressives? How diverse is my cabinet? Where do they come from? What's their experience? So, you know, today's section of the hot goss, the hot political gossip is Who's Biden going to select to to lead his cabinet? And who is he going to select to surround him? Who are going to be his advisors? Why? What do we think, fellas? I want to
0: preface all of this with saying that this is all speculation. But he hasn't
1: made any official decisions on cabinet positions. A lot of it is just inside reports about different talks that have been had. And, you know... I think there's reason to believe that Biden is considering a lot of the names that have been floating around, but, uh, no one's, no one's going to predict the cabinet exactly correct.
0: And obviously most of these require Senate confirmation and the Senate being still in play with the two runoff elections in Georgia. Um, it's up in the air
1: and not, not to be morbid, However, an 87-year-old Republican senator in a purple-ish state was diagnosed with COVID-19.
0: He's tweeting away, though. He seems to be in good health. Chuck His Grassley, is President is Pro Tempore of the Senate.
2: Senators have good health care. He should be just fine.
0: Let us be clear, we wish him all the best, of course. Yes. I, I do
1: not wish harm on Chuck Grassley. However, a Senate seat could open up in Iowa.
2: No, 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 however.
1: (laughs) That is is true. A Senate seat could open up in Iowa, and that could have major implications. It could be Joni Ernst. (laughs) Right, but it could have major implications for how the Biden administration plays out, because that could turn into a a deficit of seats in Congress, or I should say in the Senate, to a 51-seat majority, which, while not comfortable, would give him some room to pass some more legislation and get his you know maybe more preferred cabinet picks through because on on, on the matter of cabinet picks there are some people who at any point on the ideological spectrum he will be able to pick without problem uh one name that i think we both mentioned before we recorded was deb holland a representative from new mexico member of the laguna pueblo tribe And she is. She's also a member of the House Progressive Caucus, and it is uh, widely suspected that Biden would tap her to head the Department of the Interior, which not only do they administer public lands in the U.S. and have control over uh, somewhere between a quarter and a third of the land in the country, uh, it is also the uh, Department of the Executive Branch that is responsible for administering our our policy toward um, you know tribal organizations. So. If Deb Holland were to get that position, she would be the first Native American to hold it. And to be quite honest, I don't think the Republican Party would block the first Native American uh, uh, appointee to the Department of the Government that oversees Native affairs. I foresee Deb Holland, who is, again, a progressive, someone that I like, as being a relatively non controversial pick for Interior. Who could do quite a bit of good in that position? But that's a progressive who would who would not be controversial. A progressive who I think would be very controversial, and would require a majority, uh, or at least fifty seats to pass, would be like Bernie Sanders or Elizabeth Warren. Who I would I would love to see Bernie for labor. I would love to see Warren for uh, for for treasury. I don't think they would pass through the Senate. But then there are also more moderate Democrats who I don't think would get through the Senate. A lot of people have suggested Susan Rice for Secretary of State. Susan Mm -hmm. Rice is kind of persona non grata among the Republican Party. Alex, uh, I I assume you would agree with that.
2: Yeah, I mean, I would say as far as toxicity goes, Susan Rice is on par with Hillary Clinton. I mean, it's as when you hear the word Benghazi and you're Republican. I was just gonna say Benghazi. It's Susan Rice and Hillary Clinton. And whether or not that's fair, it doesn't really matter because that's just what it is. And I don't think. Right, it, we're
1: not debating whether or not the criticism yeah. is fair. We're debating whether or not the Senate would confirm. Yeah, well, or... what,
2: I, what I would say is no Republican who wants to be reelected, particularly swing state Republicans. And there's a lot of them up for reelection next uh, in 22 not a single one of them wants to be attacked for voting for susan rice for joe biden's cabinet um so yeah because
1: watch those primaries
2: yeah and you know and i also just want to swinging back to deb holland for a second uh you know i used to work for a senator who actually sat on the indian affairs committee and so i had to do a lot of work with that committee when i was in that office and one of the things that i found out that was deeply troubling if you read any of the uh, Office of Government Accountability, and they have a list of the, of the 10 sectors that are either the most corrupt or inefficient or incapable of, of doing what they're supposed to do, I believe at the time, six out of 10 was the uh, Department of the Interior, specifically um, Native American Affairs. Um, <laughs> which isn't even called Native American Affairs;
0: it's called the Bureau of Indian Affairs. Yeah, which it, it, it would is, would offend some people. So.
2: It is the Bureau of Indian Affairs. It has a record for being one of the most ineffective uh, portions of the DOI or any branch of government. Um, whether it's Interior, Education, um, you know, uh, the Bureau of Indian Affairs deals with everything related to to Native peoples. Um, <laughs> I'm sure, I, and and just this is a little
1: speculative but i would bet if you were to take a poll of people who live on every reservation in the us i would bet a strong majority would say that they're not very fond of how the us federal government handles tribal administration
2: absolutely and so who better to deal with you know those issues of corruption or incompetence than someone who is one deeply qualified Congresswoman Holland is a deeply qualified uh, uh, member of Congress and someone who has experience in New Mexico politics and now federal politics, but also someone who has a personal stake in this and personal experience in this. So who better to, to tackle corruption in the Department of the Interior and the Bureau of Indian Affairs than Deb Holland? So I think she's a wonderful choice.
0: I've seen her at some of the Natural Resources Committee hearings, watching her grill some some of the witnesses was, uh, that was fun. or She's cool. I like her.
1: And hey, she's a member of both the, um, the subcommittee on indigenous peoples with, uh, uh, within the committee on natural resources. And she's the chair of the subcommittee on national parks, forests, and public lands, all of which would make her an excellent fit for department of the interior. And the other thing is, because this is the other consideration Biden has to make is, will Democrats keep that seat? And well, let's just look at the numbers here. The seat is listed as D plus seven, but it's also in Albuquerque. Biden can pretty safely pick someone like Deb Holland without worrying about the Democrats, you know, losing hold of that seat. Um, or you know, he could he could pick someone. Uh, some some people are saying that uh, Xavier Becerra in California. He's the state attorney general over there. Alex, you're wagging your finger. No, you're not very happy about that. But some people are saying that Biden could tap him to be a G. And, you know, that's another situation where, you know, Attorney General of California, it's an important position. I imagine the Democrats will keep it.
2: They would keep it. I think that Joe Biden should tap Sally Yates for that position. Um, I mean, I think...
1: Others are also saying Doug Jones. He successfully prosecuted a very famous uh, case... I think it was uh, a clan uh, members attacking like a black church, and he managed to get a conviction forty years later. And I mean, he that, actually has a, a a good civil rights record, Doug Jones.
2: He does, uh, but I think that someone with more you know experience within the Department um, of Justice might be better equipped. Um, and I think Sally, Sally is a really impressive the, career. The
1: one thing that could be difficult for her is I, I wouldn't be surprised if a lot of Republicans are, I don't know if, if, if it would be enough Republicans, but I wouldn't be surprised if a lot of Republicans still have a bad taste in their mouths from when she defied, um, what was it that Trump asked her to do? And she That's said no.
2: Banning the, uh, the Muslim ban, quote unquote.
1: Oh yeah, which by the way, uh, as an immigration law uh, worker, I'm obliged to say terrible policy. She refused to enforce that, which, good. But that that made her, I'd say, relatively uh, disliked among the Republican Party. I I could see them going either way on trying to stop a Sally Yates appointment. I could see there being enough Republicans for her to pass. I'll leave it up to Joe what he wants to do there.
2: He's going to be the president, not me.
0: Alex, I don't know if you wanted to speculate on the Department of Education
2: no matter what he does, it's going to be disappointing. And here's why. Because whether you're progressive or moderate or you're conservative, I I think there should at least be some agreement among the fact that the teachers unions um, are some of the greediest and most corrupt organizations in the United States. And
1: some issue with this, but, but I'll let you keep going.
2: I mean, I, I mean, in in a lot of municipalities and in states, teachers unions actively try to bankrupt the states by asking for more medical coverage, asking for greater uh, retirement benefits and more entitlements, and they just don't know. God anything. forbid, God forbid, our underpaid teachers. Oh, they're these, not,
1: which of you progressives, turned? moderates, conservatives? Let's all agree on these conservative ideas.
2: No, <laughs> no I'm sorry. Uh, just just to remind our listeners i i was a middle school teacher for an entire year and before that taught in private school and before that it doesn't matter that's more than y'all have and i'm telling you that the teachers unions are no bueno no bueno teachers unions and so to tell your to potential major teachers union leaders to leave the department of education just because you are a union leader does not make you qualified to decide you know let's all of a sudden make policy regarding K through 12 education. Let's all of a sudden make policy regarding student loans and higher education. I think he should choose a career educator. I think that's a good thing, but I don't think that choosing, and by the way, when you're the head of a teacher's union, you're basically a glorified lobbyist. I don't think he should be choosing an education lobbyist to lead the Department of Education. I think he should choose a career educator with an experience in policy making and drafting and writing. Look, there's a lot of progressives or moderates that he could choose from. I don't really care, but don't choose someone just because of their political clout and education. Choose someone who actually has the experience to make meaningful educational reform, because we desperately need it.
1: I can agree that we need someone who will make meaningful education reform. Uh, I don't have the same beef with teachers unions. Maybe here's here's a thought. I know you kept saying, well, they're asking for more medical benefits. If we just made healthcare a human right, Oh, if we God. had a single payer Medicare for all system. No. Well, Alex, then they wouldn't have to then they wouldn't have to negotiate healthcare benefits. They already private health insurance through the state.
2: More. They just want more. They're greedy.
1: It's really not greedy to want access to health care. Oh. No, well, no, it's not. It's gonna- actually it is not greedy to want access to something that has been recognized by the United Nations, that has been recognized in what is it, the Universal Declaration of Human Rights as a human right. Access we're to not, medical care. We're not talking it's not greedy. It's not greedy health to, health to, health 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 to want health insurance coverage.
2: We're not talking about access to, to medical care. We're talking about they want platinum plus benefits. You know, they want the best HMO not that money can buy. And I'm not sorry. Not only
1: do I have a strong feeling that you are exaggerating,
2: you're I also have a, I, I also
1: have a very fundamental belief that health care is a human right. So I don't really think that they should be negotiating these benefits for private health insurance plans through the state. I think it should be given to them as a right. And then maybe they can negotiate other things such as, you know, um, I don't know, sick days. I don't know, I don't know,
2: anything else. I'm just People saying, say a that M4A would go out of the classroom because the teachers and unions have convinced them that they don't have it good enough. I'm all for giving teachers raises. I a lot not-
1: of teachers are horrendously underpaid. And you were very fortunate to work uh, through charter schools and a private school that paid you compared to public school teachers quite well. And there are a number of public school teachers who work in extremely underprivileged districts because schools are for some godforsaken reason funded by property taxes, by godforsaken reason, we won't get into it today, but the reason's racism, long story, um, are, are funded by, by by property taxes. So there there are public school teachers who are many public school teachers who are struggling and put in a very difficult position. And I am not going to sit here and call those people greedy for wanting things like healthcare, for wanting better uh, rights for themselves as workers. Teachers are the backbone of this society. The people who educate our children are fundamental. And I know you agree with that because Alex, you have worked in education. You have been a teacher. I know that you believe that teachers are necessary to our society And so I'm not going to sit back and call them greedy just because they would like to, you know, live a decent life, have access to something like health care or have, you know, strong worker rights. Because at the end of the day, when workers are given a better say in how their work is done, they are happier, more fulfilled people. Because people don't like being told what to do. People don't like the corporate structure where you point fingers and, and basically just have your minions um you know bungle around doing things people like having a say people like collectively working together for what is in their shared interest i'm not going to dump on teachers for for fighting for things such as basic you know good pay um
2: or or, we have have fundamental disagreements we don't want to get too off topic but long story short i'm not in favor of him appointing anyone who was the head of a major national teachers union and uh, we we can we can have a whole discussion about education clearly, and we can dive into. We that. We could do a whole episode on education. I think. I'm
0: interested to see what happens to any of the other presidential hopefuls. Um, I know Pete Buttigieg, Buttigieg was floated a for runner. Veterans Affairs. Um will be so sleep, scandal He'll never
1: work in government again. Please,
0: Pete.
1: Yeah, Pete. I want Pete to be knocked out of public service for good.
0: Well, that sounds like a can of worms. Beyond this, yeah, I won't, I won't get into discussion. why I hate
1: Pete Buttigieg so much. This is well known, though. I really do hate uh, Pete Buttigieg. So, in, in that sense, I fully endorse him for VA. He will become so plagued by scandals that his name will be poisonous in Democratic circles. Pete Buttigieg for VA. I'll campaign for him. I'll lobby Biden myself. We we kind of we we got we had a bit of a a, a chit chat before the show about Jay Inslee for EPA. I think he would have trouble passing through a Republican-controlled Senate because among Democrats, Jay Inslee is one of the most aggressive, if not the most aggressive, on the issue of climate change, which I think is wonderful, and that's why uh, in my dream cabinet, I probably would pick someone like Jay Inslee to head the EPA. Would Biden pick Inslee? You know, there on the one hand, there's been a lot of talk that Biden wants to move aggressively on climate change, and you got to feel like having a a a very pro-environmentalist uh, head of the EPA is, is is a cornerstone of that. But does he want to swing as hard as Jay Inslee?
0: I wonder if for positions like that, and I don't know, um, health and human services or something, if, if he's going to be pressed to pick scientists, which I know that sounds dumb that like, oh, a scientist, but like.
1: Or kind of like how we were talking about with education, like, For education an an educator, educator. like pick a teacher. For health and human services pick a doctor or an epidemiologist, something like that. Whereas, you know, Trump, he thought, I'll pick a doctor for (laughs) for housing and urban development. Really not the man's wheelhouse.
0: Yeah, I President Trump's cabinet appointments is a whole nother we won't get a separate, get a separate that. episode that doesn't need to happen too. at this point. Frankly, it doesn't. It doesn't need to happen because uh, he lost. So he lost.
1: He did not win. It is still very amusing that he picked a a brilliant uh, neurosurgeon to head housing and urban development. That's that's his that's his pick. That's okay. Um, maybe okay. Biden will have an equally strange pick. Alex, wh- what do you think will be the strange pick out of Biden?
2: Oh, man. (laughs) I think all of them are going to be a little bit strange for me, at least. Um, (laughs) um, Strange pick. I think Susan Rice would be a strange choice (laughs) if he decided to make her UN, uh, excuse me, Secretary of State. But also, I think putting Pete Buttigieg in the cabinet would also be kind of a weird choice. Because at the end of the day, his experience... He's a no one. Can I say that? He's a no one. No, it It is. He's an, he's an up jump. Okay, that's fine. You can be an up jump, but he's not qualified to lead the VA. He's not qualified to be UN ambassador. Personally, I think that the UN ambassador should be former Congresswoman Tulsi Gabbard, who has a wonderful foreign policy experience, is a piece uh- She's,
0: she's essentially Pete Buttigieg, just in a different package.
1: That's not true. I don't like Tulsi Gabbard very much, but I actually think I like her more than Pete Buttigieg.
2: And she was in yeah, he... for eight years serving on the Foreign Policy, Homeland Security, and Veterans Affairs Committee. So I'm just saying she is pretty, pretty, uh, and she also would break uh, certain glass ceilings as the first Hindu woman to ever be United States. I just
0: don't think the appetites there I mean no offense like you can like her all you want but she's a nobody as much as Pete is unfortunately but like I
2: like I think Pete is a strange choice for anything and I think it's a mistake to put him on the cabinet just because he's a celebrity in the party right now but I think in three years no one's gonna know who Pete Buttigieg is
1: in three years everyone's gonna get tired of his plastic Obama impersonation I I just I I have nothing but contempt for Pete Buttigieg. I'm sorry. Um, Before we I devolve into
0: the Pete Buttigieg hate portion, the of Pete of the
1: Buttigieg show. hour, I could go on for days. <laughs> I, I will add, just in my humble leftist opinion, I'll keep it very abbreviated because I've talked at length a number of times. Uh, whoever Biden picks for any foreign policy position, I will hate, uh, and I am extremely critical of things that the U.S. has historically done and our role in the world today. So I would have to see some pretty dramatic shifts from a Biden administration for them to gain my trust on this issue. Also, I'm keeping it abbreviated because otherwise I would I would go on for an hour about the history of US foreign policy.
2: I, I'm glad you brought this up. I almost forgot about this. Politically speaking, there's one black woman in the United States Senate and that's Kamala Harris. And come January, there will be zero black women in the United States Senate. However, if Joe Biden chooses Chris Coons, the senator from Delaware, as his secretary of state, who has been a leading contender, he currently sits on the Foreign Affairs Committee, and him and Joe Biden are quite close, being from the same state. Lisa Blunt Rochester, who is a congresswoman from Delaware would almost certainly be the shoe in uh, for that seat, putting another uh, black woman in the United States Senate. So I, I do see that as a real possibility, because I think Joe Biden is very concerned with, and also Lisa Blunt Rochester is very close with Joe Biden. She sat on his VP selection committee and she was an advisor and an endorser of his early on. And he may want to reward that loyalty by providing her a juicy Senate seat. So. We'll see what happens, but I think that would be a smart way to shuffle some friends around and give some rewards to loyal Biden supporters.
1: Yeah, I think I think it'll be very interesting to see how these things shape up and the number of seats are going to open up. And it's a question of, you know, what seats are going to open up. And as someone who leans a little bit to the left, I'm very curious to see if we're going to uh, have some... some Potent uh, progressive challengers in the in the primaries. Too early to say. Uh, you know, things could be very routine. It could be, you know, a fairly. Just, I don't know, like a like a walk in the park for the more moderate wing of the party. But we could see progressives put up a real fight to try and uh, get the nominations for what could be a handful of blue seats in New Mexico. At least, I think it's safe to say. To replace Deb Holland. If she's picked for interior, I think progressives are going to make a big push because Holland herself is a member of the House Progressive Caucus, which people often forget makes up close to half of all Democrats. It's not a small group. It's not just AOC plus three. It's like something like 94 Democrats.
0: Just to contextualize any of these cabinet picks as the lefty, but not the leftist member here. I would say any of them are gonna be a breath of fresh air compared to who Trump has had in any of these cabinet positions. Um, so I'm, I'm excited about that. And I, like, p- the biggest discussion about all this has been how much our progressives gonna push him on who he picks. And I think we went over this a little bit before, but-
1: Yes, the answer is yes.
0: <laughs> it's It's just, Should he pick the cabinet that he wants or should he pick the cabinet that he can politically afford to get. And so I think that's what we're going to have to see going forward. Um, But these positions do matter. Um, They set the tone for the, you know, the policy and the regulation that comes out of these um, cabinet agencies and uh, That really does matter for for the next 4 years and and potentially beyond.
2: That's true. Yes. So with that being said, you know, we should uh wrap up here. Thank you all for tuning in to our second episode and we look forward to chatting with you all next week. Uh logging off. My name's Alex Walton. My name's Cam.
0: And I'm Nick DeCorata.
2: It's been a pleasure talking with you all and uh, tune in next week.
0: Thanks for listening.